0: Better way to do this. Let me show you a better
1: way.
0: Hi folks, this is Jack spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tougher even if they don't. Today is August the 28th, 2014. And this is episode 1415 of the Survival Podcast. I've got a good one for you. I've got uh, Stephen Soboskit on from uh, Miracle Farms. I probably just mispronounced his last name, but uh, I think I get it right at the end of the interview anyway. Uh, Stephen's an awesome guy. Um, he is the person behind the DVD called The Permaculture Orchard. I learned a lot from that DVD. I learned a lot from him in this interview. In fact, I think you'll hear he and I learning a lot from each other in this interview. This is one of the longer shows, especially longer interview shows I've ever done, and I don't think I covered half of what I really wanted to with Stephan. Uh What you'll hear during this interview is the heart of a teacher, the heart of a servant, and... uh and me having to continuously bring the interview back around to his operation because of his amazing desire to try to help me uh, with his knowledge uh, directly. Uh, just an awesome dude. I think you'll enjoy the interview. Even if permaculture is not your normal thing, I think you'll like this one. There's a lot of business in this one as well and a lot of philosophy. Before we get into that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. Sponsor of the day, number one today, Fortress defense consultants, hey, you want to own a gun? You want to defend your family or yourself if you need to? That's great. Well, there's three things that go into that. There's the weapon itself, which you can just buy. and You can buy a good weapon, and you got a good weapon. There's the ammo. Gun without ammo, overpriced club. But you can buy good ammo. You can just buy those two things. They're commodities. The other one you can purchase, but you also have to work on it. It's the skill as an operator, and really... The best way to develop that skill is to not only take great training, but take great training from, from from teachers that train you, yes, but also train you how after you leave and go back on your own to continuously train yourself. That's what you'll get from Fortress Defense Consultants. Remember, you, the operator, are the linchpin that makes the weapon and the ammo actually function when necessary in a crisis situation. Check them out today, FortressDefense.com. Next up, hey, you know what you need to live? You need water. Probably more than anything else that we can uh, worry about out there other than, I guess, air. Uh, You need water. Take somebody off water for three or four days. They're dead as a stone, man. And uh, you need good, clean water. And we've seen time and time again in crisis situations uh, when people are faced with a choice after a natural disaster to drink toxic water that's going to make them sick and possibly kill them or die of dehydration, they'll drink the toxic water every time. Don't end up in that situation. Drink the cleanest, freshest water you can get every day and be prepared for disasters as well. Do that with a Berkey and get your Berkey from Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. Why would you get your Berkey from anybody but Jeff? He's the Berkey Guy. Seriously, though, he's a great, great guy and a maniac at customer service. He will take care of you in ways you cannot imagine. Uh, the dedication he has is kind of unbelievable. Check him out today, Jeff the Berkey, Berkey Guy Gleason at directive21.com. Next up, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. It's how we pay the bills around here, so to speak. It is a program that I put together years ago, and I designed it to pay for itself. If you're buying stuff in the preparedness and self-sufficiency and self-reliance world, this membership will pay itself. You'll get discounts from great companies like Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason will give you discounts on just about everything he has inside the Member Support Brigade, and many of our other sponsors do that as well. Plus, many other companies that aren't sponsors are supporters of the MSB, from the practical to the tactical, gardens to guns, and everything in between. You can save money inside the member support brigade. You'll also get content available nowhere else, including every episode of the Survival Podcast ever produced in convenient downloadable zip files. For those of you that want to go through the archives back to the beginning, that's the easiest way. Fifty bucks a year or five bucks a month and military law enforcement peace corps and first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters, all of you guys qualify for a discount on an already great price. Email me with service discount in the subject line and in one or two sentences tell me about your service. Again, either active duty or prior service you do qualify. And I will send you the discount code. Please do this before not after you join. Or when your renewal's coming up if you're already a member and didn't get your discount in the first place. With that, um, let's talk about the year that was the episode. This is an interesting year, 1415. You may have heard of a, of a, a saint's day called St. Crispin's Day. Um, you may have heard of it because of Shakespeare. You may not know the actual story behind it and the origin of the phrase, Band of Brothers. 1415 is the year, so because 1415 is the episode. Alex Strug has a great one for us today. We band of brothers. King Henry V of England has attacked France in what historians call the Hundred Years' War. What King Henry calls it is taking back his own. The fami- famous Battle of Agincourt takes place on the Festival of St. Crispin. King Henry leads his weary troops in hand-to-hand combat against a much larger, well-rested French force, but victory really hinges on the English bowmen. The bowmen kill so many Frenchmen, they have taken to raising their two fingers in a V-salute, an insult to the French, saying, I still have these two fingers to draw back my bow. Some historians consider the V for victory sign to have originated there. Against all odds and common sense, the English are victorious, and King Henry will be memorialized in the play Henry V by William Shakespeare later in 1599. Warning, King Henry V has a real good sense of public relations, but he can't outright lie about this battle. There are too many independent accounts of it. Luckily, he did well. Uh, my take by Alex Shrug. It's worth quoting a few lines from this inspiring speech from Shakespeare's play Henry V. Click on this link for the speech in entirety. It's all good. And I will do my best to read... The, he has it paraphrased and in the original Shakespearean. I'm going to read my best Shakespeare, <laughs> which probably isn't that good, but from the speech by Henry V, Act 4, Scene 3. This story shall the good man teach his son, and Crispin, Crispin shall ne'er go by, from this day to the ending of the world, but we in it shall be remembered. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers... For he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. Be he ne'er so vile, this day shall gentle his condition. And gentlemen in England now abed shall think themselves accursed they were not here, and hold their manhoods cheap whilst any speaks that fought with us upon St. Crispin's Day. My take by Jack Spierko. When I hear... Elegant words such as this, and there are few who have ever penned words more eloquent eloquent than William Shakespeare. Uh, In regards to war, my thoughts are thoughts of caution. My thoughts are these. There are heroes in war, but war is not heroic. There are things that happen in war that are glorious, but war is nothing of glory. And if we would strive as hard for peace as we strive for war, we'd probably see more heroism and more glory with less bloodshed. That's my take. My words of caution whenever you hear glory and heroism spoke of in relationship to warfare. With that, let's get into the main topic of today's show. It's uh, my good fortune to have Stefan with us today from Miracle Farms. With that, hey, Stefan, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Nice to be with you, Jack. Hey, uh, we got you on to talk about your orchard, which is one of the only permaculture orchards. It's truly a permaculture orchard that I know of. Before we get into what you've built, how you've built it, and why you've done that, Could you just start out with a little bit about, about your background? How did you get into, you know, a point where you decided, hey, I'm going to build a permaculture orchard? Did, did you, um, you know, many of our guests went from doing something like flying airplanes to teaching survival skills. Have you always been in, you know, horticulture and, and agriculture or is this something you came to later in life?
1: Yeah, it's actually, yeah, it's kind of later in life. It was one of these things where, uh My background, I was trained as a biologist. Uh, I was also trained as a landscape architect. I got a master's in both. And I had a, a landscape design office for 20 years, during which I decided to get into orcharding, which I knew nothing about. <laughs> uh got into it just because I thought that would be the place that would make the biggest impact on the land. Uh, as a biologist originally I started because I thought biologists are the one who are going to save the world and make the world a better place. But I realized as a, that most biologists are just monitoring the decline. <laughs> and I didn't really want anything to do with monitoring a, a negative. So I said, all right, that's not exactly it. And then I realized maybe it's landscape architects that are doing the big heavy lifting in terms of changing the, the space or the ground or the land and making it better for, I was looking primarily for nature and for making it a better habitat. So I got into a a master's specializing on designing to attract birds. And so that was what my practice was then afterwards. And kind of like most things, I tend to get into it about 15 years ahead of its time. (laughs) So uh, when I was doing landscape design, uh, it was not at a time when people had even really thought of it, so it was a hard slug to get clients uh, I did get i was I was busy enough, but it would have been nicer had I been able to grow uh more so i finished i was doing that, and I had the farm, so that was a few tough years where basically I realized uh, knowing the season, knowing what season to do what things is really important because otherwise you end up getting a double peak. And that's what I had. Springtime at the farm is the busiest time. And springtime in landscape design is the busiest time. As soon as, (laughs) yeah, we're in a northern climate. So people get really antsy while there's the snow is starting to disappear. And it seems as soon as the snow is poking holes and people see ground, the phone would start going crazy and, so everybody wanted things done at the same time. And I went through about four years of total frustration trying to do both and really doing a bad job at both. So I decided, okay, this is not working. I have to decide which one I'm going to pursue. And I had been doing the design for about, uh, for almost 20 years by then. And I just said, okay, that's it. I'm going to can that close down the office and focus on the farm. And that was kind of the timing where I had been doing organic orcharding for the many years before and realized, okay, the orchard is there. It works, sort of, uh, but doesn't work as I intended originally, so...
0: When did you discover permaculture and all this? When we were talking offline before we got started, you mentioned you're getting ready for a PDC up there, so we might hear some people moving some stuff around in the background. Was was that part of, like, a transformational thing? Is it something somebody told you about and you investigated Did you go straight to take a PDC? You know, how did did that piece come to you? Actually, I had just finished my master's
1: in landscape design, and at, uh, what, two years after that, I was in, I was in the library in one of the university libraries and I came across Mollison's manual. It was nineteen eighty nine or nineteen ninety. And it was like, wow, somebody's put it into a package. This is fantastic. It was really a it was really finding what I had been looking for. I knew a lot about it. Uh, my background trained me in design really well and trained me in the whole biophysical world really well. So all that part in terms of you know, being able to walk the land uh, and, and know about the species and how they work and everything. All that part was really, I had that well down. What I didn't have was basically chapter one and two in Mollison's book, the whole design ethic and the principles. So that year, uh, we started with a friend to look for someone who could teach permaculture here. And we found it in a guy called Grégoire Lamour in BC and he was one of the few people who could teach permaculture in French. I'm in, I'm in the French part of Canada and we needed it in French. So Grégoire came down from, uh, from BC and that was basically the start of a series of teaching, uh, here in Quebec. I was part of that course from the beginning, even though I had not done a PDC myself. Um, I was able to certainly teach parts of it that pertain to the the animals and the natural environment and so on. And so I attended the, the first three days of that course because I thought, wow, that's exactly the kind of thing I needed. And then when I saw what the rest was, I realized, okay, uh, I've done, I don't know how many plant identification and forestry courses already, so two hours won't change my life in that. And so it went the rest of the course. So, I got the part that I needed, and uh I went from there but anyway that then that's kind of how I got into it
0: was it a very transformational thing for you as far as like a radical change in thinking
1: actually it it really wasn't because I found some of my early uh designs where I had in mind what I wanted to do with an orchard and and it was funny because I found that this spring when I was going through some papers and I said, look at that. Even before I would bought this farm, I already had the design of what I've actually implemented in the permaculture orchard with the trees, the shrubs, the perennials, uh, attracting the birds. So I had the the ideas already laid out even before I discovered permaculture. So it was kind of a. Uh, A funny thing, because to me, it was, and that's one of my definitions for permaculture, is it's really applied common sense. Uh, If we do things that just make a lot of sense, hey, that sounds very much like permaculture.
0: So can we talk about... It usually is. Yeah, absolutely. Can we talk a little bit about how a permaculture orchard is different from a regular orchard? And I'd say really more how it's different from an organic orchard. A lot of people in my audience are very familiar with the concept of of a food forest, but what you've done really is an orchard with many of the elements of food forestry in it, but it's not the closed canopy sort of thing that I'm building on three-quarters of an acre on my property. Those don't really work great for commercial production. To me, they're more of a a food-based habitat for humans where you've built something from what I've watched, your you know, your movie. Actually, we backed your Kickstarter here um, to, to make that movie. But what you've built really is an orchard. But talk about how it's different from then just an organic orchard where they don't use chemicals and sprays.
1: Yeah, and by the way, thank you for backing the, the film, because that was – it was our first experience with kickstarting, and, and it was a fantastic experience. Um, how it's different – there's a few questions in there, because how it's different is one, and the part about what you're saying where you're trying to do a closed canopy, uh, let me just address that one, and then we'll come back to the how it's different. The closed canopy works very well, say, in, in the subtropics or the tropics. Light is not a limiting factor in those climates. In fact, you have too much light, and a lot of what you want to grow needs some shade. So in those places, a closed canopy, food forest, whatever you want to call it, works very well you can have multi levels and have a completely closed canopy and it will work in our climate i mean i
0: think you're in missouri i'm in texas i'm in the weird yeah. place where i got i got the dry tropics half the year and i got the frigid cold and in, in the in the winter it's it's a very weird climate
1: you you may find that your light may be limiting i'm not I mean, yeah,
0: we're doing a little bit different than what you see in the tropics. We're doing more of a of a savanna model, so we have a a strip forest based on swales with open glades in between the swales
1: okay so we're
0: but but that's still not what you've done in other words, you've made your system something that works as as a as a productive harvestable orchard I guess is what I'm getting at
1: yeah, well, we had it was partly just. For practical purposes and practically, well, we saw what was kind of working. Uh, the orchard, the way it was laid out, we just took the same arrangement. So logistically, it was simple. We had irrigation. We had our wire set up. Uh, we had the roll orientation set up. Everything was set up as per the previous organic orchard. So when we tore out the trees, we tore out the trees. We, we just, the land was cleared except we still had all our posts, we had our wire, we had our irrigation, all the infrastructure was still left in place. So for practical purposes, it just made a lot of sense for us to use that existing system and build on it. So that's where we have the tree rows and then the grassy lanes in between or glades. Basically, it would be the same as yours, except you might have less uh, or more space as a grassy lane, which which is great because having the sun get in low down is the important thing and that's where a lot of people I think may find that the bottom doesn't produce very well if they try to close the canopy too much correct in fact the first uh, piece that you see in the film or the the, the, the block in which we filmed the, that film it's a one acre block and it uh we found it's already a little too dense uh we've been cutting trees down actually in it just to try to If a tree is not doing well, it's not the right cultivar, we don't like it, it's not working well, we just cut it out, not too fussy about it. And so the next block we put in that's uh, a little more than three acres is uh, spaced further apart. We learned from the previous one, and so we're giving
0: it more light. How do you feel about this philosophy? We're, We're moving more and more towards some of the projects we're working on where we're actually going denser But with the intention of killing, uh, the, the inadequate, the weak, and the poor performer. So we know full, because we're doing a lot of our own production, or we're doing, we're growing rootstocks and grafting, or we're growing from seed, we know full well that some of the, some of the trees are just not going to produce very well. And we know that we need that open, you know, kind of semi-open canopy in the end. But by going with that higher density, it makes it really easy to go, Yep, yeah, that one's not doing good, <laughs> rip, out it goes. And when you plant that initial open space, if you have a weak tree and now you've got to take it out, it's a little bit more of a difficult decision, I guess. Yeah, that. I mean, I'm glad you're trying something different from mine. I mean,
1: my goal is that there would be a thousand people that would be doing something similar so that we can really start to learn in a bigger scale what works, what doesn't work. We can do podcasts. And, and compare different people's situations and how it relates because then people would say, Hey, you're in my state. I'm going to go see how you're doing. But in fact, if you're from the other side of the state, it may not work as well either. Each right. site, each site has its particularities, uh, the orientation, the slope, whether there is a slope or not, if it's flat in the soil. But so you know that there's huge variation from one place to another. I'm in a kind of unique place because we're, in what's called the, the St. Lawrence Lowlands which is the area along the St. Lawrence River in eastern Canada and it's the old lake bottom when the glaciers melted and it made a a lake so it's normally it's very clay soil we happen to be at one end of what was the lake so it was it was the beach and so we got very deep sandy soils in fact our neighbor has a sand and gravel pit so we're in kind of a unique situation so people just five miles away are in a very different situation from what we have. So that's where you get all this this variation. But your strategy is is correct. Try putting it in dense, And as you say, if you're going to be doing a lot of selection, then that's great. It'll, there may be times when it will hurt you because you'll go, these two are doing really well, but it's a little too thick in here. Yeah. So one will have to go. And that's all right. You can always, you know, if it's really good and you just say, well, I'll take the best of the two and I'll graft the other one onto something else. And we won't lose that uh, new tree because if you're putting seedlings, some of them, you're putting uh, rootstocks and so on. Even rootstocks can be interesting because you may get some uh, some rootstocks which turn out to be somewhat uh, good.
0: Yeah, there's an apple that's, that's turned out to be really good. I can't, it's like Anacostia or something like that, rootstock. It's a full-size apple rootstock and it grows, it's a Russian cultivar and it grows a great apple.
1: Yeah, it's Antonovka.
0: That's it. Yeah, it's,
1: it's one of the very few true varieties in apples because the difference people say, most of the people call it varieties, but they're actually, technically they're called cultivars because they're a cultivated variety. The only way to get a cultivar is to do a vegetative propagation, and that's usually a graft. Uh, but a variety is is truly technically the definition is one that will be reproduced from seed. And Antonovka has been selected for long enough in one area for you know, hundreds of years, and it's a stable variety. It means you take the seed from that apple and you seed it, and you will get 98%. You will get very very close to the Antonovka original. Which is very unique in apples. It's not as unique in in shorter lived trees like peaches and uh, peaches. Nectarines tend to come back much better from seed, but that's a good one. They use that for sure. Planting them when you get a seed planted, we we put a few of our trees in our newest block from seed, and the difference is quite astonishing. I mean, you never have any transplant shock. The roots never get touched. Uh, they. They grow so much better. We had two me or two yards of growth, like six foot trees <laughs> when we seeded in June and by September, they're already a six foot tree. I mean, that's, we plant trees that are less than six feet and three years later, they only reach six feet sometimes. So putting a seed in sometimes can be really dramatic because they basically drill down and they hit a good layer and then they never turn back. So. That's a good strategy. If you could use seedlings and without transplanting a seedling, but actually seeding them, mm-hmm. uh, that can be really, really good. You'll have trees that will be a lot longer lived. And actually, the research now is showing that you get a, a quicker production on those trees. They don't take, uh, like an Antonovka standard apple, normally will take seven, eight years to produce on the graft of the like a grafted and then seven years before they produce. But from a seedling, you could get four, or even five years. Uh, you'll get a good first
0: production. Cool. I'm glad to know from someone in the business how so to speak, we're on the right track there. Um I've been looking through a lot of your stuff and a lot of things I'd like uh, to kind of go through here with you and have you explain to the audience, you use a term called the trio and that's kind of a building block to what you do. Can you talk about that?
1: Yeah. Uh, the trios basically, yeah, it's the building block. So it's instead of considering your orchard planted with all one, it's kind of going back to the question you asked earlier. What's the difference between a permaculture orchard and an organic orchard? Let's let me just touch that one because it kind of shows the difference. Uh, when I was when I had an organic orchard, it means you'd have one cultivar, or what some people call variety. Uh, you'd have one in the whole row. Give me an apple type that you know of.
0: Um. So I'm I'm all Southern, so Erm Shimmer, which you probably don't grow up there. (laughs) That's Israeli. Uh, I don't know, Golden Dorset, that's probably also a Southern variety. Okay,
1: so you take those two, and normally if it was an organic orchard, you'd have Golden Dorset. You'd have maybe uh, 150 trees in a row, and you'd have three, four, ten rows maybe of it. So you'd have one block of just Golden Dorset, and that's what I had. I'd have you know three four five hundred trees of the same cultivar and that was one piece then i'd have another four rows of another one and so on that was when it was the organic orchard there was it's basically a a monoculture even though we you say well you have different cultivars but all you have is apple and sometimes we had a bit of variety because we had grass well Okay, so you got apple trees and grass. That's, that would be the definition of an organic orchard if you treat it organically. Not a lot of variety at all. Diversity extremely low. So seeing that and having gone through it and having had it for 15 years, I realized there is a lot of limitations. And the permaculture orchard, the idea was how can we from the beginning design this orchard to be one productive commercial And the second one, to have the diversity built right into it. One thing I knew I definitely did not want to see ever again in my orchard was two of the same trees touching each other. That's just two of the same species even. So no two apples should touch each other, no two plums should touch each other, and so on and so on. And that was the basis of the trios. So to design the the permaculture orchard, I said, okay, how can I put in that diversity? And have it work so that right from the start, I'm really designing the solutions in rather than coming back and repairing the problems, which is what was happening with the permaculture orchard. Yeah, you can say it's, I mean, with the, sorry, with the organic orchard, you could say it's organic, but it required a lot of inputs. And so the trios developed as, as per Mollison's manual. I, I loved his chapter on the, Temperate Climate, I uh, don't know, I think it was chapter 9, and so he had a, a diagram in there to show how you would set out an orchard, and so he would have a nitrogen fixer, an apple, a nitrogen fixer, a pear, a nit- nitrogen fixer, a plum, and so on down the row. and I thought that would be a, a really neat way to go. The only thing is, when I looked at it that way, we don't have nitrogen fixers that are produce a commercial crop our nitrogen fixers give us diversity but they don't give us a crop you have crops that will grow that will give you something some of your listeners are probably in areas where you can grow carob for example great nitrogen fixer and you get a commercial crop out of it so that's interesting the only thing is if i went to a half of it in nitrogen fixer and a half in fruit crops, I would be taking up half of my land. Land around here runs for anywhere from eleven to $15,000 an acre. And if it's orchard land, it's it's more than that. So that was a lot of money really sitting around not doing anything if it's not commercial. So I thought, all right, how about if I just split that and give each fruit tree will have a nitrogen fixer on one side, at least. So that the the whole thing with the trio, and I called it NAP, as you saw in the film, it's nitrogen fixer, A for apple and P for pear, plum, uh, or cherry. So that was what we could grow, and that's what we used. And so that was the basis. And those trios are repeated, but not with the same one. So, for example, the apple in the first trio is a different apple in the second trio, and often it's different also in the third. So if you get the gist of it, it's, let's say, N, uh, Golden Dorset, and then a pear, and then a nitrogen fixer, and then, what was it, Ernie Wells or something?
0: I'm not sure. What do you? But you
1: mean? called it your, your apple that you know of there.
0: Oh, and Shimmer. It's an Israeli bred apple. It only requires uh, 200 chill hours, and okay. that's why we grow it down here in Texas. Uh, that Golden Dorset, Set and Anna, I think, are the three out of the Israeli uh, College of Agriculture that they developed there, and and we grow those here, and uh, they seem to be doing well. They're newly planted, so we'll see.
1: Okay, so you would have for your trios example, you would have. Uh, A
0: nitrogen fixer, what what would you use in your area? Um, It's an interesting question. We're not where we can grow any of the tropic-based stuff, so we try to put some things in for nitrogen fixation that do give us some sort of a yield. So we'll use Gumi or Autumn Olive often uh, as a nitrogen fixer. We'll also use some Acacias, which give us no yield at all, but they are good for browse. Um, I've, I've used Black Locust. I've used honey locusts. Both of those are great for the bees, at least. So we try to always use something that will, will do more than just fix nitrogen. So a black locust, I'm not going to live on black locust beans, right? But it's a great bee tree, plus it's a timber tree.
1: Right. And I'll show you, the, we didn't go through it in the film because we didn't have it established, but we've actually made our nitrogen fixers uh, as productive and probably more profitable than our fruit trees right now
0: uh, you Use them the scaffolds
1: we use them as as uh, yeah as just a support for uh, kiwi and grape, so it you can grow grape and you can grow kiwi, so we let those plants climb up the nitrogen fixer, and so we really lose no space now we have fruit in the complete trio, but at the same time the nitrogen fixer we still have them there it 's still producing flowers, which is one of its other things for bee pollen and and forage, and it also could be cut for forage, and so on, so it's really using it, in fact, the nitrogen fixers have become the hardest working tree in our orchard, because we we go with the whole principle of permaculture, that each uh, element should have at least three functions, and yeah, as you mentioned, you know, nitrogen fixing, it's a good bee forage, so I thought, all right, we got those two, maybe we could use them as browse, that would be a third, but in in fact, as we went along, now we we've, we've used our uh, we set up a frost protection system above the canopy that you saw in the film. Uh, mm-hmm. So they're also used as living posts. Living posts are a lot more interesting than a dead post because you won't have to replace them. Like yeah, that. they don't yeah. rot <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and actually, actually, they're get stronger. and factor
0: into one and damage it. You cut it off and it grows back.
1: <laughs> exactly. So that that I love that idea of using. You know, trees as posts. That's not new. People have used living trees as fence posts and, uh, Joel Salton talks about it in his glades where he, in his glens where he runs the pigs and so on. So using a live tree as a post is, is really nice. And then it also serves as the stake or the support for the uh, vines. So that's, that's really nice to get that, that multiple use out of the one tree, which at first, when I first well, I was thinking of it. I thought, okay, it's the nitrogen fixer. It'll attract bees, uh, you know, maybe some forage, but now it's really working well. So you would do that. You would have, for example, your golden dorset, your, your shimmer, uh, as your, in your first trio, you'd have golden dorset, your second trio, you'd have shimmer, and then you could repeat back golden dorset shimmer. So that way what happens is your golden dorsets are at best, or at closest, six trees away from the yeah. first golden dorset. And the big virtue of that is if it, for example, is more susceptible to a certain insect than, let's say, the shimmer, well, that insect has to go through a lot of trees before it finds the next one. And you will not get them successfully walking from one to the other. They may try and fly, and that happens, uh, but it really, really reduced... Certainly the the most obvious one is it reduced the caterpillar damage. I used to get caterpillars. When it was organic orchard, I could have a third of the orchard.
0: Don't let that disturb you. It's just I, one of the geese yelling at me through the window. I
1: know. I hear it. It's good. That's good. They, they're your best guard, guard animals.
0: Yeah. Uh, he's mad at me because I won't come outside and play with him, so he, he's... He's trying to get my attention.
1: Well, it's good that you don't have swans. We used to have swans, and boy, when you think geese are loud, swans are are Uh So that helps a lot. And we, with the caterpillars, we had a lot of damage. We would get a third of the orchard half eaten some years. It was just, it was heartbreaking to see how much caterpillars could do damage. And now, the last few years, with with the orchard being uh, mature now, we see that, uh, in the permaculture orchard there is always the start of caterpillars we always get them making uh, laying the eggs on the leaves and so on or wintering them on the branches and so they start off and we leave them we used to cut them out uh, in the in the organic orchard we don't cut any caterpillars out anymore we just watch them <laughs> and so i was trying to show somebody on the weekend Uh, I want to show you some caterpillars, and we had to look for 10 minutes to find a caterpillar that was actually alive, because every place we saw where there was caterpillars, when we looked closely, they were all dead. They were all Mm -hmm. mummified, they were all partly eaten, and so so what used to be a real problem is a total non-issue, and uh, you may not grasp the importance of that, but when you have something that you needed to really work at to get rid of, and then it by doing the diversity properly there is no problem like there is nothing forget it you see them don't panic give it a little bit of time you'll see there is going to be somebody is looking for them and we got a lot of wasps and we got a ton of birds and those two combined the the birds in the spring especially because the birds are nesting and they're really looking for caterpillars in the spring and at this time the wasp nests are huge by now we got a few basketball size wasp nest that we found that we, we actually uh, have to tape off danger zones because if people don't know and they happen to walk and, and bump into them, uh, they really could get killed. So those are the ones who now are patrolling. You, you see them walking through the orchard, you'll see all of a sudden these wasps just flying around, looking under each leaf, just looking for a caterpillar. So good luck. Finding one when they're so good at finding them, you won't find one.
0: Well, to me, I've always looked at trying to wipe out the pests, like going to the Serengeti, killing all of the impalas, the the kudu, the zebras, the water buffalo, all the plains game, and then saying, I want lions, right? <laughs> Without the prey, you cannot have the predator. Exactly. So wipe out the prey, the predators leave. And then the interesting thing about the prey is they breed a lot faster and they come back a lot harder. So the predators have now gone. Uh, you've killed the lions and now you're going, I have these wildebeest and zebras eating all my grass. And why won't the lions come back? Well, the lions have determined that there aren't. there's nothing for them to eat here. By the time they come back, you're at the end of the season. They've gone elsewhere and found habitat that has the prey that they're looking for. And then your system adds to it the big thing that the predator is looking for. It wants a pest that's a little bit confused and a little bit out of sorts and isn't quite sure what's going on. So if I like apples and I'm eating an apple and I hop over to this locust tree and I go, "There's no apples here. Where the hell did my apples go?" Bang! Wheel bugs got you. That's that's the way that your system works. And I think you're hitting on what I think are one of the two big reasons so many organic orchards fail is that the the methodology of organic orchard seems to be we'll just have an orchard without chemicals and we'll use different stuff to deal with the problems. And that doesn't really address the reason that the commercial orchards using all those chemicals in the first place.
1: Exactly. Yep, you touched exactly that when you said in the original how you know how I learned about permaculture, uh I learned the ideas from one of my professors, uh Stuart Hill was uh, he's a fantastic entomologist, but that he was more of an ecologist And he was at McGill University in the 80s when I started. Uh, he used to t- teach us basically about the principles of permaculture before they had a, a name to them. Uh, he was he was basically a, a parallel to Mollison in terms of the whole concept, and he was looking at uh, how can you do that, and he had actually taught us about He had the models of production, and so you'd get the conventional model, and then he would teach us that you have the IPM model, which is integrated pest management. You still spray, but you spray less because you monitor. And then he went into organic, which he didn't call the organic model. He called it the substitution model because it's exactly that. Rather than using the nasties, you're substituting with organically approved sprays. But you haven't redesigned, and so then the next model of production was uh, the biodynamic which you still spray and you still use things, but most of it coming from your own site or your own production. And then after that, he had one model that he called the redesign model. (laughs) And when he started to teach that, it was like, wow, this makes so much sense. This is so good. And so I was just lapping that stuff up, not knowing that it really was permaculture principles, but he just called it redesign. We need to redesign our system so that we don't have to come in. And because he was an entomologist and he saw that, all entomologists basically are at the employ of either governments to monitor the insects or chemical companies to, you know, it was like this is degrading to the profession of entomologists that why can't we work at actually building habitat? How can we work at, you know, how can we make the system more robust, better? We know about the insects. We would be best placed to actually create the right habitat. And so I was immersed in that in the beginning And when that's why when I discovered the word permaculture, to me it was like, yeah, that's it. Somebody's put it, you know, in a package like this. I had heard about it as redesign, but not as permaculture. So that's exactly it. You redesign the system so you don't have to come back and deal with all the problems. And it's amazing how well it works. Your Serengeti model, it works. People have tried getting rid of the elephants. And then what happens? Wow, the elephants are the keystone. You got a, a major crash going on.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Sure,
1: well, in Texas you have the similar thing where you've got so much deer, well, yeah. you wiped out the, the wolves years ago. Yeah. And people would, you know, are you crazy bringing back the wolf? Well, look what it's done in Yellowstone, you know. Well,
0: it's bringing itself back right now. We've exactly. got the Mexican red wolf has just decided, "Oh, you left that niche open. Guess what? We also have um Fairly large coyotes in Texas. I'd say bigger than a lot of the country and, and they've, you know, stepped up to that niche, but they're not big enough to take down adult deer. They're, they're, they, they prey on fawns. Um, I don't think we'd have near as many deer in this state if we didn't have people basically ranching deer. Um, we have a whole segment of the state in West Texas where, I believe the deer are artificially high because they're fed year round from corn feeders and things like that, and they're, you know, they go out and they put water in for them. And I'm not putting it down or anything. I'm just saying that like that population and its total number could not exist in that part of the state without man basically, for lack of a better term, farming a wild animal. It, It just couldn't. There's no, there's not enough food. And
1: that's great. I mean, why not those farm those ranchers? They know a good thing. They're, most of them, I know, make more profit from the deer oh, yeah. leases than they do from the cattle. Yeah, And it is a good synergistic system because the cattle help the deer and the deer actually help the cattle. Uh, so it's not a bad thing to do that. The only thing is a lot of times the some of the major predators are lacking. Mm-hmm. So, But, I mean, a lot of those places actually go through and do some pretty heavy culling of deer.
0: Uh, Yeah, the bigger operations all have uh, pretty uh, economically affordable options to come in and and shoot does because, of course, everybody wants big horns for their wall. Um, I always take advantage of those opportunities because I want meat uh, for the table to go next to the applesauce.
1: Right. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, just as an aside, because uh, having been in wildlife, I know that uh, you can have big antlers but only where you have the right mineral constitution, in the, yep. either in the soil or available. And that's where some of them have really latched onto some of the best mineral mixes. And once a deer is absolutely satisfied with the mineral needs while they're growing their antlers, they will put in huge antlers. Yep. And so if some of them don't know about it, by all means look into mineral supplementation uh, with the widest range of minerals. And it might be one element It's basically the ecological principle of limiting factor there's usually one element that's lacking and if they have that element in abundance then it'll go on they'll grow at maximum capacity and so if they they can have big antlers and they can have you know lots of deer but they've got to make sure that they are not lacking in in minerals because usually they're not lacking in the forage too much but they're often lacking in the right mineral mix
0: very cool so let's get back to your place though can you give us kind of an idea of the diversity of crops that you grow?
1: Okay, in the trees, we have, uh I mean, we're north, we're at 45 latitude, uh, we have our winter minus temperature, to give you an idea, it's we had last year minus 28 Celsius, which is, uh, it's about minus 25 Fahrenheit, or no, minus 20 Fahrenheit, so that was our are low, it gets colder in other areas, but that's what we have. So we still have apples and we still have pears. We have Asian pears. We have plums, uh cherries. We tried growing some peaches. We're just past, we're just at one zone out of good peach area. We had peach growing well for three years. They were going to produce this year. And last winter, we had our kind of our 25-year low uh, winter temperature and it knocked down almost all the peaches right to the ground. They just died. We have in small fruit what we use underneath the trees, because as, as much as I said a trio of apple of fruit trees and so on. We also consider trios and shrubs. So our shrubs would be black currant, red currant, gooseberry, hascap, or edible honeysuckle. Um, we also grow with the equivalent of our shrubs. We put in raspberries and rhubarb, so that makes for many combinations possible using those as our shrubs and then we have a whole i don't know we have maybe a hundred different types of ground cover perennial uh, flower edible vegetable perennial vegetable and so on so i don't even i there's a lot of them <laughs> we're always trying new things we got you know all kinds of wild things trying uh perennial wheats perennial rice, and so on and so on so the, the range is huge so that we can then plant. Our next block will be a much less diverse uh with the best performers. So the same like you were talking, you're going to put things by seed. You come in, you cut, and what you're left with is a really good performing orchard. So that's the goal. You want to have diversity. We put it in as let's plant as much of the things as we can, which is if somebody uh, doesn't know, even actually on one of my websites I have – uh, mollison's phases of abundance and uh, it's it's a great great little three-page piece that explains the phases over seven years what you'll go through uh, if you just look up mollison and phases of abundance you'll find somebody who's got it that's a great look at what you can expect to go through with the years and you first basically are putting in as much diversity as you can and gradually selecting and getting down to less and less diversity, but the things that really work well on your site.
0: How important do you think that is, that if someone's going to be developing an orchard, especially with any level of commercial uh, potential, that they are... Kind of phasing that in, and they're growing their own varieties to a, a degree, and they're selecting for their own, and they're they're propagating. I guess the bigger thing they're propagating their own future expansion versus trying to buy all this stuff. Because when you start looking at buying uh, enough plants to cover an acre, let alone twenty, it's it's unbelievable how how much money you're into how fast.
1: Yeah, you you uh, you've experienced it. So I would. Uh it really depends how deep your pockets are because uh I used to teach fruit production and I showed students, I'd say, okay, how many trees are right here in a nursery setting? Oh, fifty, 50, a hundred. No, there's a thousand trees here. What? A <laughs> thousand trees. I said, yeah, there's a thousand trees here. You can't be, look at how big I said, do you have enough room in your backyard for this size? Well, yeah. I mean, it's, we have one piece in here, a nursery, uh, my intern put in last year, he wanted some trees. I said, sure, let's put one in. So it's, it's 70 feet by 30 feet. There's a thousand apple trees. Well, 70 feet by 30 feet. There's a lot of your listeners that have that size of piece of land easily, you know, somewhere available. If they don't have it, does your, somebody in your family have it? And so we put those nursery blocks in. We've done, I don't know, two, four times already. We've had a nursery. Because, uh, a thousand trees once grafted are worth between twenty and forty thousand. As opposed to, to plant them, it costs you your rootstock and it costs your scion. We get rootstock for maximum a dollar a piece. So it costs you a thousand dollars to buy your rootstock. If you seed them, like you're using Antonovka, hey, let a few of those Antonovkas grow, keep the seeds, seed the whole uh, nursery, you can see the difference. we we've just uh, finishing up a report on the cost of putting in the permaculture orchard and the potential return. Uh, we're still a couple of weeks from having the whole thing. We've got it just about done in French, then we'll put it out in English. And uh, that is something that if somebody's thinking about a business plan, it is absolutely, a, I mean, a super, super thing to have Because it'll give you basically all the crops, what the expected yield can be, uh, the cost of putting it in. So overall, what the, the big picture of it is, to give people an idea, if you wanted to start from scratch and buy all of your plants and have it all done, all planted by a contractor, to do in the same way as what we're doing with the permaculture orchard for those who saw the film, it would cost... And this is basically your you want a turnkey operation, it would cost you a dollar a square foot to put in, say an acre. So forty three thousand five hundred bucks to put in an acre. If you did it yourself, well, it could be as low like I did. We we grew all of our own plants. We bought maybe we bought five hundred dollars of plants over the years from which we multiplied. Uh so it cost us not counting our time, which you should count it as well, but because we were experimenting and trying a lot of things, it cost us less to do that than than a thousand dollars to put in an acre. Uh, so that's no, sorry, a little more than a thousand, not counting the infrastructure. Uh,
0: so that's a planning cost. That's not your
1: irrigation and all that, right? But even if you were putting in the infrastructure, the irrigation, the plastic, and everything else, uh, the way we did it would cost you about five thousand as opposed to forty three thousand so there is a huge difference and mainly that because you've probably seen it if you're planning 20 acres your big cost is your plants if you're buying in your plants uh it's that example simple if you're buying in by the acre load which would be several hundred like on an acre we put in 450 trees one acre will cost you easily at that rate uh Fifteen to twenty-five dollars, even if you're buying in 450 trees, because you're not getting the big discounts come in when you buy a thousand or so on. You you can get them for 20 acres, you can get that kind of discount, but usually that's what you're looking at: fifteen to twenty-five dollars per tree. If you grow your own, you know, if you're looking, anybody who's thinking in the future, oh, I want to do this, you know, in two, three years, there's nothing that's as good of a motivator as having your trees sitting in your yard or in somebody's (laughs) yard and you go i got five thousand trees in that nursery i gotta get a piece of land and i gotta get those trees planted ground yeah yeah Yeah. because if you wait three years forget it you may as well leave them there because after three years those trees are going to have grown so much you won't be able to uproot them
0: yeah and you're a big fan of planting smaller trees
1: absolutely because you won't get that transplant shock you won't get the it's just, it works so much. If you can, put them in by seed. I mean, if I was doing it now, I will, mm-hmm. be, I will be seeding my nitrogen fixers. I won't even be transplanting them because without the, you know, they, there's no cultivars involved. I don't have to have a grafted nitrogen fixer. So that one, absolutely, we'll be putting the plastic and we'll be seeding. That's our next target is to put in at a, a half acre to one acre a day to establish everything. So that means the, what is it 30,000 plants per acre and so we want to put that in in one day or two days at most so that's what we're working on how to do that so we can mechanize everything and once we reach that and and you know i've I've asked for help for that from the (laughs) uh you know if there's an angel out there please you know i'd I'd (laughs) love to because even the governments go what that who's gonna do that that sounds crazy this is so far ahead of where they are at yeah commercial i mean you ask any of the the state uh what is it called extensions or they'll look at you crossways and they'll say like what do you want to do boy do you know what you want to get into you know (laughs) they'll laugh you out of the office basically so going to there don't use the word permaculture we were talking with a few people about that and permaculture is not one you want to put in. when Don't say, oh, I want to put in a permaculture. Permaculture is known by less than 1% of people. Don't use it. Say you want to put in an agroforestry, that's accepted. Mm-hmm. Uh, say you want to put in a silvopasture, that's accepted, and there is money for that. So just don't use the word permaculture. Do it that way, but call it something else. Otherwise, the government's agencies will just... They'll, they just won't listen to you. They'll, they won't
0: sure. take you seriously. There's an old saying in sales, and that's that's my background from many years ago, and that is always use the vocabulary of your prospect. Absolutely. So never use words that the person you're talking to doesn't know, understand, or, or, or doesn't respect because they, the, the people I find that try to do that are always the people that try to make themselves look like experts by using a bunch of jargon that no one understands but them. But true experts are always make, make things very easy to understand. And when it comes to creating deals with people, you want the deal to be under, as understandable as possible, whether it's obtaining government funding for expanding a pasture or whether it's, you know, attracting investors if you want to do it in the private sector, however you want to do it. The person that's holding the purse, right, needs to understand what you're presenting to them in the words that they would use themselves, or you're just not effective.
1: Absolutely. So let me ask you, Jack, before you go on, because you opened the gate. <laughs>
0: <laughs> do you consider the film giving you an impression that it is simple? I wouldn't say that it's there's – a, there's a way to look at that, though, right? So I do think that there's a simplicity to it, and I think that's great. But what I'm talking about is simple to understand, so it's not really, is the methodology simple? So I can explain an internal con- combustion engine to you in very simple terms. It doesn't mean the engine's simple, if that makes sense. Right, right. So was no. the film, did the film make it simple? Yes, definitely. No. Definitely. It's just, I don't want you to take that as a, that can also be kind of taken as insulting, you know, like it's, it doesn't. No, no,
1: no, I meant, I meant, Yeah. after I explained things in the film, do you say, Heck yeah, I can, I, I get it, I can do that. Yeah, I mean,
0: it's a big part of, a part of why Nick Ferguson and I, with our, our Permaethos Ethos project in West Virginia, are going to go real heavy with the seed planting. Um, we just decided, and, you know, he's got 25 years of horticultural, so he didn't need to see your video, I did. Uh, when I saw you doing overgrafting and stuff like that, I'm like, we'll plant, we'll plant these Russian apples, we'll plant any damn thing we can get our hands on. And anything that produces something we don't like, we'll just graft onto it. And then you're sitting on a rootstock that grew where it was planted. And you can't ever replicate that. I don't know if you're familiar with a product called Groasis, the water box thing. I think they're too expensive to be practical on scale. But the one thing I learned from their little animation was that basically the bars of pressure that a tree's taproot can exert on the ground once it's disrupted in, say, a pot or by pruning, it's cut in half. So that means that you've weakened the tree's ability to penetrate deep into the soil by not growing it in place by 50%. That doesn't mean it won't work. It just means it's, it's never going to be as capable as it could have been. And, and that was really a big thing for me. So when I saw you talking about overgrafting, I'm like, well, then why don't we just grow everything right where it's going to stand?
1: Yes, you know that uh, I was very fortunate actually I'm, we're fortunate here in in uh, Quebec because we get people coming across from Europe who who are French speaking and the French are really I would say the world leaders in terms of orcharding. I mean they've had some people who have been a generation ahead of their time and they've got it to the point now that they have crews no they don't replant orchards. Like they don't tear out and replant or vineyards they have crews that go through, and they go in a crew of three and overgraft the whole orchard. They do uh, a hectare a day, which is two and a half acres a day. So these three guys, the first one goes in, cuts the tree down, cleans it off, takes the, the branches that he needs off. He'll leave two branches at the bottom, and that's it. The next guy comes around, puts in the graft, Bum! it's done. The third guy just comes around and waxes the whole thing, seals it up, and it's done. So they've just saved a tree that might be 10, 15, 20 years old. They've used that root, as you say, and then they've got a tree that's producing within three years and producing well because it's got the third capacity. What you're saying in terms of using seedling trees is, uh, is even better. It really is better because if you can grow a seedling tree, that's never now been transplanted. And that's why I recommend using small trees, just because at least you will have less of a shock. There will mm-hmm. be a little bit of shock, but often you can pull out a seedling tree. We get all our nut trees that the squirrels plant. We just dig them up the week that they they sprout, because they'll come up about eight inches within a week and a half. And we come in and we dig them, and we get the absolute complete... Uh, root. You can see, you've got the whole thing. So that is the best. I can hear your chicks in the background.
0: Yeah, I just moved them away from the mic a bit. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. So you actually also aim at, like when you plant an orchard, I think most orchardists think, I want to maximize my yield for me. You actually plan a portion of the yield to go to nature. But like you don't get upset because something ate one of your apples. Heck no, <laughs> no. I
1: mean, that's where I think we, you know, that, maybe you saw the first little video we put out. Uh, it's on possible dot org, and it's about the permaculture orchard. And actually was, uh, I don't even remember the title, but Miracle Farms, a uh, five acre uh, commercial orchard. And in that little video, I really I expanded a little bit on that idea where the third ethic of permaculture, yeah, share, um, sharing with people is important, but it's really sharing, that should be expanded. And we, I started writing a little article on that to sh- expand the third ethic of permaculture because we really need to consider in that sharing with people, yes, sharing with nature, we've kind of lost that, we've Say, oh, yeah, but I want to grow my crop, but I want it all.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, and on the third ethic, you, you're really hitting it there. There's this whole group of people that have decided that, for political reasons, they'd like to rewrite that to be redistribute. But if you listen to Mollison or Lawton teach it, it's always taught as return. Yeah. So that doesn't mean that some of it doesn't get shared with people. What it means is that, that ethic is actually designed to return surplus to the goal of the first two, which is care of the earth and care of people. So I think under care of the earth, that's that's all of nature. So right. if we're not returning some of the surplus of our productivity to the animals and insects that, that habitate our property, that system cannot possibly be in balance because we're now in a Extraction model. So, I think not just orcharding, not just regular, I think all of agriculture, from one end to the other. The reason we're in such trouble is we are, we are trying to farm, but we're acting like miners, right? So, miners extract, right? So, you pull the coal out of the ground, and if you put anything back, it's, it's, it's something to fill the hole so it doesn't collapse. But it's the cheapest thing you can get. So mining is extraction model. Exactly. Agriculture, if it's done properly, permaculture—I don't care what you call it—has to be a farming model, which means that it's a cultivation, and you can't be in a hundred percent extraction model and and be sustainable. It's impossible. It's never been done, and it's always led to like gnashing of teeth and anguish and misery and collapses of civilizations. Is what it's always led to.
1: Exactly. I see you, you've done. A bit of thinking on the subject and speaking with a lot of people, you've gotten a lot of points, viewpoints. Uh, one of my mentors, he had, uh, his definition of agriculture. I loved it. He said it's bringing culture to nature. <laughs> and it's that kind of cultivating, which we forget because you're, you're absolutely right. Too much of farming is just mining. And I, I just saw the statistic for France. Their overall average for the country in organic matter in 1950 was 5.9%, I think it was. So very close to 6% organic matter, right across the board, across the whole country. And now they've dropped to below
0: 2%. Hmm.
1: And anytime now you see a headline, you know, oh, there was rains, there's big flooding. Well, hey, you know how much one cubic foot, one cubic foot holds, uh, is it, a, a, I think it's a liter and a half or a gallon and a half of uh, water, each 1%, so one, one cubic foot of soil, each 1% we increase, oh yeah, that's right, it's a liter and a half. So if we went back to increasing it to 6% from 2%, then you've increased 4% uh, percent organic matter, which is 6 liters, which is uh, over a gallon, it's a gallon and a half. So each time it rains, each cubic foot will hold a gallon and a half more water, Texas doesn't have a problem of, of, uh, too much rain. It has a problem of too low of organic matter. And it's not just Texas. It's pretty well everywhere you it look is everywhere. that's been cultivated. It's been an extraction. It's been mining. And what the mining is really is mining of, of organic matter, which is really our inheritance, which is what, you know, previous generations worked very hard at building organic matter. And we've,
0: we squandered it, man. I mean, if you look at it, and what I try to get across to farmers with this, when I talk to farmers about it, because they think in dollars, which is fine. So all I'll say is what the USDA says you're allowed to lose per year in topsoil and be doing good soil management uh, is roughly one and a half inches of soil per acre to cover an acre. If you were going to buy good topsoil and cover an inch and a half of soil across an acre, what would it cost you? They generally don't know the number, but they know it's a big one. and if they're farming even forty acres it's a, it''s a it's a massive number. So I think that we can overthink things from the financial standpoint, but if that's what it works to get your head around it, I'll use it. When we look at that type of a loss, there's a huge environmental cost to that loss, but we can actually quantify that commodity in dollars, and it's it's a frightening number when you look at all of the agricultural lands in North America, for instance, and what is the the financial loss in topsoil that either blows away or is washed into the rivers and goes out to sea and contributes to the dead zones in the oceans. You, if you, even if you take all of the environmental concerns away from that and just look at it with dollars, it's trillions of dollars. Yeah. And, and that's, that's like, when you're talking to somebody that's all business-centered, it's like, do you understand that? And they usually do, but then they don't know what to do about it. And like you said, it's about restoring a natural balance to things. Um, you have also something in what you're doing called a grocery store concept. So it's, I think it's how you've addressed a question that I get a lot is like when you plant all this crazy stuff, Jack, and you've got all these different varieties and everything, how do you manage to harvest it, right? So that's that's how this comes about. Is that what that term is about?
1: Right. It's, it's probably the biggest piece of the puzzle. Uh, it's probably the biggest contribution of, you know, what I've done is a lot of people who have thought about this say, geez, you know, how do you do How can you manage it? How does it work to have variety and diversity, but to still be logical in terms of, you know, it, it harvest, for example? So seeing that we had an orchard before and it it was all a monoculture, so it was simple. Okay, the 10th of September, we're going to go in and we're going to harvest this cultivar. So that was easy to know. Well, I kind of just adopted the same idea, and I said, okay, rather than going in and saying, you know, we're going to harvest this cultivar, we're going to go in and harvest these 15 cultivars in that same window. Okay. So when we were looking to, to design the orchard and planning it, that was the big aha moment, was how can I put all these different ones in a way that makes sense? And the biggest thing is, you don't bother with anything else other than the harvest date. So you put it in trios but every plant that is harvestable in terms of the trees goes in according to a harvest date and I use three 10-day windows per month so that makes it simple. And so during those 10 days everyone that's put in that row will be harvestable at that date. Now That works great when you're using cultivars, when you're new, using ones that you know a harvest date. When you're using seedlings, it could be problematic unless you're going to overgraft all of your seedlings. So that's a first phase. If you have basically a a seedling orchard, that's great. Do it that way. Leave it as, leave it at that. Don't even, if they're going to be good, leave them grow like that, but that's your, You're basically your gene bank of plants that you'll plant then for the rest of the whole property. And so you monitor, go through and make it a point during the harvest time to go through at least once a week and sample them. Is this one ready? How is it? What stage is it at? Oh, this one falls just before it's ready or this one. But you have to know that. And even, Mm -hmm. I mean, our first block, there's probably 10 cultivars that are not quite right. My closest bit of data when I was planning it for that certain cultivar might have been Cornell. Okay, what does Cornell have as a harvest date? Well, I couldn't use the exact same harvest date because they're far enough away from us. And so a few of them were, oh, no, that was off. We were off by maybe 10 day window for that one. So that's okay. It's part of the, you know, learning process. But if you do know a harvest date for your area, and that's really it, for your area, when is the golden dorset ready what week to what week is it ready well then it's easy you can you can put the other cultivars that you know the same harvest that you probably have a a plum that's ready at a certain time sure same time so you put that golden dorset with that certain plum and maybe you have a pear tree also or maybe you have a peach a late peach that's also ready yep And, and so you combine those in the same row the idea being just like in a grocery store, you walk, and on each side you have an aisle. So you'd have a central lane, and we call it our, our the lanes, the grassy lanes, and then we have two aisles, uh, or two rows, rather. So the rows are where we produce the crop, and the aisle or the, the lane is where we walk. So on each side, so you have a central, and on each side you're harvesting that period. Um, and then on the return side, and there's details to it that I didn't even put everything into the film. That was one of the hard things: is getting every last detail in there. And we'll almost have to do a follow up because there's there's points that we know after people have asked questions, and I go, "Oh yeah, geez, how do you fit everything into two hours?" Anyway, uh, so we have like in an aisle or a grocery store, you'd go to the end and you come down another aisle. So we have what we call a one pick rose. So say you're talking, uh, what are we today? The last third of August. Okay. Well, the last 3rd of August, you'll have these two rows that are harvested. Uh, and then you get to the end of the row. And when you're coming back, you come back in what we call a continuous harvest row, which is between the two dates. So if you have the end of August and then your next two lanes, maybe, are early September. So in between row 1 and 2 and 3 and 4, there is a lane way. And so, as you come back in that continuous harvest laneway, you would have things that you harvest continually. For example, tomatoes. For example, cucumbers. Okay. You know,
0: okra. So you're basically t- t- on on that type of thing. You're really almost doing alley alley cropping here with your annuals, except instead of doing like the whole laneway as an alley crop, you're clumping them into the edge. Right.
1: Oh yeah. Cool.
0: The, the, actually, the
1: annuals, we did a lot of annual vegetables and that's one of the things in terms of the, like I was saying, the, the economics, the numbers, we, you can be profitable from year one and that's the odd thing. You could be profitable in year one if you're growing a dominance of vegetables the first year, second year and third year and using animals. So we do uh, birds in pens and so we use the grassy lane as our pasture for the for the pastured broilers and ducks and and other animals so using those two which are annual crops i mean your chicks that are there you may may be raising them for eggs but it's an annual crop you'll have okay it'll be next year you'll have the eggs Mm -hmm. uh, but they can be producing from the first year you could buy in chickens that are laying from year one in the first spring maybe you plant it in the spring not recommended but Maybe you plant it in the spring, and then that spring right away, you could already be harvesting eggs. You could already be getting your lettuce. You could already be getting your annuals. And the big plus is that while your trees are small, uh, that's something I saw in in an old book from Britain. Uh, People used to lease land for orchards. Very few people owned their land. They would buy them. I mean, there would be a, a lord who would own it, and they would rent it on 25- to 35-year leases, Mm. and they would plant orchards in those lands. But they didn't use the space uh, as just grass. They would actually grow their vegetables in between the trees, and because they used to use just standard trees, they didn't have the dwarfs. So there was a lot of room until that tree actually filled up the space underneath the tree. So people produced for 10-15 years other crops underneath the fruit trees. And that's how they could actually make it financially viable. We've kind of gone away from that model because we say, well, we're putting in this and, you know, the bank will finance it. Well, people didn't have bank financing the same way in the past. And so how can you do it? Well, you can plant your trees out. And while the trees are getting older, you can grow annual things like vegetables and, and uh, animals.
0: That's, that was exactly what Mark Shepard did with New Forest Farm. He said he was giving a talk one time about establishing a chestnut orchard, and he said to a group of, of farmers and ranchers and, and orchardists that in my first year planting chestnuts, we, we made a profit of $4,500 an acre. And some guy stood up and was like, pissed and cussed at him and said, You're a damn liar and, and he said, I didn't say I made it with chestnuts. He said, We we put pastured poultry through it, we grew zucchini, we grew asparagus, we you know, we 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 built this as and the farm that when I took it over was growing corn and some of the land we kept growing corn on while we built the, 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 the tree based silvopasture pasture around it. And his point was you don't have to, you know, with chestnuts, it's a very long time to return. You don't have to wait 10, 15 years to make a profit. You just have to wait 10 to 15 years to get a full-size chestnut tree. And then he did a lot with the selection as well. Like, he did all his chestnuts from seed. And at two years, some of them were flowering. So, like, he basically killed everything that wasn't flowering. <laughs> he just took a chainsaw took it to the ground. And, and so he ended up actually with, with chestnuts producing nuts in some quantity at five to six years from seed, Absolutely. and and that's just not done, but yet just by, you know, chestnut seeds a hell of a lot cheaper than chestnut uh, trees. It just is, so that enabled a lot more quantity of planting, and I think we can do that. I don't think every fruit lends itself to that, but like, you know, we were talking about doing with apples, and we can do a lot with plums and peaches as well. I, I remember reading in some book, I think it was Backwoods Home uh, magazine, about how to propagate peaches from seed and that they propagate so well from seed that a lot of our early settlers in this country thought that the peach was native because people that had gone on before them had left peach pits everywhere and enough of them had grown that it looked like, well, nobody planted this. They must just grow here. And and for a while, there were groups of people in our country that thought the peach was native to the United States just because they, they are so prolific and they will grow from seed. I think there's a lot... Being lost by always going with the bare root grafted model. You know, I think there's, there's, there's a place for that. I do a lot of it because frankly, there's diversity. You know, when I want you hear me talk, I want you to understand. I have a little three acre homestead here in Texas and then we have a, a 110 acre farm in West Virginia that we're working on. So there's two totally different goals there, but I want tremendous diversity on this little homestead of mine. Well, I'm not going to get that if I try to do everything with seed. But to tell you the truth, if I knew what I know now, I kind of feel like you, what you were just saying this earlier, if I knew what I knew now, (laughs) a year and a half ago, a lot of these trees that I bought as bare roots and brought in, I would have just seed planted and then obtained scion wood from somewhere and overgrafted. Absolutely. And you get a much hardier tree. I mean, I'm going to go in and plant the hell out of some stuff this fall and... If some of the stuff that I put in is weak but yet survives long enough to end up being a sign for something else, fine. At least the investment's not totally lost.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean the the, the whole it's it's different models. I mean what you're touching on is is the commercial conventional model, it's a monoculture mindset from beginning to end. And so they're looking at, they want trees to be absolutely, I mean, clones. It is clones. Every apple mm-hmm. or every fruit virtually you eat is a clone. That works well for that because they want to go in and they want to do the exact same treatment for the whole block, harvest all in one or two days. And so for that, it works. But you can have your cake and eat it.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: I mean, the grocery store concept has... Has totally thrown out the idea that well how can you have variety and and you know make it logical you can you can have it both we have actually for the grocery store we have three harvest windows we have springtime which we harvest our spring vegetables we harvest the the rhubarb we have all of the greens are harvested then. And then we have another window in July, which is all the small fruit. So we have the whole range, which is our shrubs that produce at that time and the start of cherries. And so you could have that and use seedlings like you're talking about. Uh, actually, that's that's that would be really one of the simplest ways. I don't want people to get the impression that, oh, I'll just gather all of my, you know, gala that I like to eat and I'm going to gather all these seeds and just put them in and I'm going to have something wonderful. No, it's not that simple. Not all trees uh, are like that. It's, apples are probably the most notorious for being, you're not going to get anything of interest because their parents of that tree that you're eating are often some kind of weird crab and so on. But in your shorter-lived things, like your peach, which is exactly one of the best examples, peach are, are as close to a variety as, as you can get in the fruit that we know of in terms of our temperate fruit. Um, so you can do that. You could put it. And if all else fails, the experience of what you learned, your exact expression...
0: Oh, I lost you.
1: where if I knew what I... Then, you know, if I knew now... Just go ahead and do it. You know, I, I'm I'm a very big proponent of hey, try it. What's the worst case going um, oh, to be? You'll have this tree that will the
0: be the fall, and we're 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 putting them in, man. That's I mean, that's just that's, that's just it. all it, it's just happening. If, if there's a cultivar there, we'll plant it in between it, and we'll see which one turns out better long term. And like I said, I think in some instances we'll go. I like the fruit off that tree, but that tree's weak and I like that tree's uh, vigor and we'll give that one a haircut and we'll graft this onto that. I mean, um, you know, you, you life doesn't come with an eraser, but you know, we can make different choices going forward. We're we're not afraid to do anything. This this place is designed to be um very much a self-sufficiency thing for myself and my wife, but it's also designed to be educational. And, and research oriented. We can make mistakes here cuz I'm not trying to make a living off of this little piece of property. If if I make a mistake, that's why I got, you know, I don't have an eraser, but I damn sure have a chainsaw.
1: Well, that that's the right attitude because, you know, you will be experimenting, you will be learning, you never stop learning. In fact, what you're saying about, you know, one that might be vigorous and one not so vigorous, if you look back at uh, the writings of Luther Burbank, you've heard of the Burbank potato and Absolutely. He was uh, an absolute genius breeder plant breeder and he would have in his uh, what is it Sebastopol I think in his on his farm he would have most of his trees would have 15 to 25 cultivars each of his plum trees especially and he had a technique which he used where at the top of the tree it had full sun so it was the place where he would put his least vigorous uh scions So Mm. like you said, you found a tree that's good, it's just not very vigorous. Well, he would graft it up on the top where it would have full sun and it could still do pretty well. And then his most vigorous, he would graft at the very bottom of the tree where it would have the least amount of sun. And that way he would control the excess vigor with that in order to get a balanced tree. So so trees really are like clay in a potter's hand, and I really had that confirmed by seeing bonsais at our botanical garden. I was looking at the the different trees in the pots, and here you get these 60, 80, and 100-year-old trees that were two feet tall. And I said, I know that tree. That tree normally in the forest is a 100-foot tall tree, and here it is, you know, a foot and a half or two feet. And I thought, man, that's incredible that you can have such an old tree kept to an incredibly small size and it really confirmed that, you know, the tree will do what you want it to do. And we, we could, uh, get a lot out of them if we just learn to work with them rather than working against them.
0: Yeah, I, I think it's, it's, it's really amazing. And it's, it's also a reason that I've become more and more a fan of not using dwarfing rootstocks. Just from what you said right there, I can, I can train a tree to be 12 feet tall. I can train a tree to be eight feet tall. Um, some of the, the most interesting backyard orchards I've seen put in with really small yards. I've seen people do full size apples and just, they just, it, as high as they can reach, that's where it gets pruned. And those trees are incredibly productive and vigorous.
1: Yeah. And actually, you know, I talked earlier about our ability to get the information from, from France and uh, France has, has, they've done the work and you're, Saying train a tree, uh, you saw in the film where I like, give you the train example, them like huh? that
0: rain pattern where they kind of weep over. Yeah,
1: right, right. And it's it's. I should just about go and do some workshops in the states because I'm amazed how how few people have been exposed to that information in the U.S. Uh, the difference between training and pruning. Just to give you an example, it takes about the same time to train a tree as it does to prune it. I have to come back and prune a tree every year for the life of the orchard. But if I train it, I have to train it twice in the life of the tree. And then it reduces my workload by 80%. So I can do an acre a day when I'm pruning uh, just because the trees, once they're trained, it used to be that I'd look at a tree and I'd go, oh my God, where do I start, you know? <laughs> Where do I start? There's so many branches that seem to need to be pruned off now, once I've trained the trees, I look at the tree and it's like my first question is is there anything here that needs to be pruned? and there's trees that I just look at it. No, nope, everything's fine. next tree. so it's a huge difference and the and the big point um, which I show in the in the film is you know, if you, if you stood up and you had your hands above your head like you were, you know, praising God, well, that will give you a tree that will be a tree. Because the hormones of that tree are pointed upwards, I mean the branches are pointed upwards, and the hormones which are, are, are dictating to that tree that it should produce vegetatively. And that's fine, but you're gonna get a tree. So the French that were teaching us, I had a one week course with them and they said, well, what do you want? Do you want a tree? And he'd stand there with his hands up. He do you want a tree? And then he would just drop his hands below his shoulders. And he said, or do you want fruit? Mm. And it's that analogy of holding your hands up in the air above your shoulders, that will give you a tree that will grow branches, and you're going to have a hell of a lot of pruning. Or, if you want fruit, you take that same branch, and you You bend it below your shoulders, and now the the hormones is like females, you know? They're dictated by their hormones, and so... uh, You're going to
0: get in trouble.
1: (laughs) 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 Well, well, I wouldn't say males aren't dictated by hormones, but okay, let's just say people are dictated by hormones, and uh, trees are as well. So if you put their branches below horizontal... On almost all fruit, and I say almost all, because it's not the case for pears. Pears are the exception. Um, They will change to a fruiting. They will be dominated by fruiting hormones. So they will still grow branches, but all the branches that they will grow will be branches that are shorter and dictate to grow a fruit bud at the end of it or a flower bud, and so. You go from a tree that needed an awful lot of work to a tree that has very little work, and they were telling Is them,
0: that because the tree basically thinks, okay, I've reached my size, now I need to produce? Because if you look at a canopy, once trees canopy out, they spread out in that canopy. Exactly. But, but they grow straight up and race each other. The interesting thing, when you look at a canopy of a forest, and let's say it's a forest with a rolling hills, if you can get up over it, a lot of times, can't, even though the ground is, is not level... The top of the canopy is level. The trees grow up and equalize to a large degree, and at that point, that's when they that's when they spread out, and that's when they become very productive. That's
1: a good observation because don't forget, at the top of the hill is not the same conditions as the bottom of the hill, and right. so the ones that are at the bottom, in your conditions, we don't have that happening in our situation because we get enough water. But I suspect in your area, because your water will be often a limiting factor, and so the ones that are at the bottom of the hill get extra water, so they grow twice or three times as fast as the ones at the very top of the hill. So that's how you get a canopy leveling out.
0: And just so you understand what I'm talking about, I'm talking about very minor elevation changes. If you change, you know, 40 feet of elevation, you're not going to see that. But when you you look out over like a rolling hill where you have maybe – 10 feet of elevation change, you'll see the top of a canopy across the top of that. It looks like you can lay a board across it and put a, a, a builder's level on it. Right, but that has to do
1: with, because don't forget, the tree has, just like people, uh, there's two phases. There's a juvenile phase, so a tree has a juvenile phase where all it wants to do is grow vegetatively, and then it has an adult phase where it's now producing. So in its juvenile phase, if it gets a little bit extra, it'll have reached a certain height, and it probably grew a little more. Ten feet is often easy to, uh, to to breach. I mean, they can catch up on ten feet. Uh, but yes, and in in terms of the canopy, but in terms of the branch angle, what you're saying is the when the tree is mature, you often see the canopy is kind of weeping. And yeah. That's it's exactly that's what the guys did in France. They just they actually tagged hundreds of branches and they photographed them over. Uh, I think it was 10 or 15 years to see the change. How does that branch change from one year over 10 years span? And they found that, I mean, what you can tend to observe, but they quantified it and so on to find that, hey, what happens now if you take that natural tendency of a branch with age to go down? And if you do it right while the branch is still fairly young, what they found was that You would now have a tree, one that would grow branches that would start to produce sooner because the branch, instead of going through a whole juvenile phase, will basically say, oh, okay, I've reached maturity. I'm below horizontal. It's time to start producing fruit. Hmm. You don't have to do that. But I've seen that if you do it and you're left with a tree, because they said that trees only need 12 to 14 branches to have a commercial crop. Well, 12 to 14 branches. You have a fairly open tree. There isn't a lot of branches left. And so there's very few branches to end up having to do any kind of pruning. Uh, they are faced with their minimum wage is $20 basically for agricultural workers. So how the heck can you run an orchard at $20, you know, for your laborers? Well, they've had to develop techniques which are a lot easier. So they talk about training and pruning. Uh, an, a hectare, two and a half acres per day. That's their standard. You have to be... For a
0: single worker.
1: For one worker. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm sure there's people who have treated... we got some
0: people on the the, the Cheetos and uh, Lay's potato chips diet. I don't know if they could walk around a, a hectare in a day.
1: Well, you know, <laughs> that that's a lot of walking back and forth, but yeah. there is an efficiency part of it, and it's possible. So yeah. basically what I'm saying is I've tried to adopt things that are known kind of around the world, try to combine them into one, uh, just use some common sense and observation and put it all into one so that you can have your your orchard and eat it too. Uh, you really what, do you can- think the,
0: what do you think the commercial potential is like on a per acre yield? I know it, the standard answer I give all the time to every question of permaculture starts out with it depends, but... I mean, you know, what, what do you see as commercially viable to support, you know, a, a single person or a small family on, on a size uh, dimension of, of an orchard, especially with all of the function stacking you're talking about, grapes and kiwi scaffolding into legumes and annuals coming in as part of like a market garden concept.
1: Right. Uh, what I was talking in the beginning about the, our, our report there, it's an Excel spreadsheet that we're, uh, we've got and, it shows that it'll cost you, you know, a, a dollar per square foot to establish. If you do everything sourced out, if you do it yourself, a lot less, uh, maybe 20 cents or 15 cents uh, a square foot or even five cents a square foot. But your return after year seven, you can expect to be getting from the perennial crops, no longer through annual crops, you could get a dollar a square foot. So hmm. figure if you're getting 43,000 in gross a year, well, it's just a question of what's your expenses? You know, how, how high on the hog do you like to live? Some people, it'll be an acre. Some people would be three acres or two acres. You could quite easily one person can take care of two acres once it's at that stage. And so it really comes down to figuring out what, you know, we don't do that yet. We're not there yet, but then our orchard is not is not optimized to produce with the, the range of crops that are simply the most profitable. We're trying a whole bunch and then we're weeding down to see which ones are the most profitable,
0: uh, which ones are the simplest and the easiest. So there is a, and you're trying to do that without losing the biodiversity to keep enough variety in the system to maintain the ecological balance that you're creating.
1: Absolutely. In fact, you know, one of the things we found on it's in the film uh is the whole point about mowing because our grassy lanes are probably the biggest contributor to the biodiversity now. Mm-hmm. It's hard to equate, to equate what, you know, a square yard of grass will will have in terms of biodiversity. So instead of mowing our lanes all at the same time, we mow take three lanes and divide each lane in half. So we mow over a 6 week period. Mm. you know we take row one is mowed half of it in one week the half of the second one half of the third and then we come back to the first we mow that in the fourth week fifth and sixth in the sixth, you know the third half the second half of the third lane if you can picture that basically at four to six weeks you have a lot of flowering happening and that diversity is huge so that was a nice little plus to learn that you you can have your diversity and yet have not, maybe not as totally gone wild crazy like we have. Uh, you can still have maybe 20 cultivars of fruit trees and still have an awful lot of diversity because of your grassy lanes. So don't underestimate the potential of the grass. We have to mow to keep access, but we always have some access. It just doesn't mean we have the whole lane all mowed, so that makes a big difference. When we are mowing, we we're finding that some of the most valuable insects that are in there would get mowed if we mowed the whole lane. So now we, by only mowing half the lane, they'll easily you give them
0: a place to run to and escape. Ex- to. Exactly. Because when they hear that machine coming, they haul ass to the tall grass. Yeah. Right.
1: Right. So that's that's a big plus. So now they they move over. They just have to move over a few feet, and they're safe. They won't be chopped up or anything. So if
0: you, if you if you can get geese in there and deal with their attitude problems, you know, they'll they'll take care of a lot of that for you. They do a great job of uh keeping the grass low. I just moved a small chicken tractor that we use when we put first put birds out uh the other day and it had been in place for like I guess maybe four weeks. Uh in a place where the birds the the, the geese and the ducks just free range through. And we're not exactly in a growth pattern for our grass right now. Half of my property is brown right now. Anything that doesn't get either infiltrated water from a swale or uh, irrigation is brown. If somebody threw a match here right now, we'd have a problem. But in that area in between the buildings where there's some irrigation, that grass is growing pretty well. And I'll bet there was an 8-inch difference in the grass that they were grazing and the grass that they couldn't get to. And, uh, since we opened it to them, man, they were, they were in there. The problem I've had with geese with young trees is they don't necessarily want to eat them. But once they've gotten their belly full for the day, they get bored like they are right now. And that's why they're trying to pull my wireless, uh, thing off of my, uh, my, my wand outside that I use to extend my wireless repeater. And they start attacking stuff just cause they're bored. And they'll, they'll take a sapling and they'll plumb clean the 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 bark off the sides of it. So there are useful elements but they have to have control. <laughs> right,
1: but a lot of that has to has to deal with the time of residence on a piece of land. Uh I mean any time you're getting over 3 days, they're actually going to be eating regrowth. so it's not the best for the grass and it's certainly not the best for the animals. Uh we try to keep animals moving ideally every day, sometimes every two days. Uh, that makes a big difference. One, and you're saying that board element, it has to do with they're very curious. Geese, yeah. we had them, I remember they used to sleep underneath our camper because we've always camped out here at the farm and so uh, they would be pulling out all the wires
0: and forget using any lights. Oh, the other alarm, the other alarm's going off. Anyway, go ahead, Stephen. Yeah, well, that
1: geese, geese are it, the, the variations in the animals are, are great. Uh, mob stalking, that whole concept. I don't know if you spoke to anybody about mob stalking, but that principle uh, we learned about it from uh, Greg Judy and and mm-hmm. a few people. Ian Innes Mitchell uses it in South Africa, so we adopted it a few years ago on a patch that was bare sand. I mean, virtually bare sand. There was a, a few blades of weeds growing here and there through it and we would run our our ducks and our chickens through there for three years and now it's one of the nicest pieces of grass on the farm because we let the grass grow to be absolutely mature so they it was big grass and then we mob stocked using just fowl so i mean we didn't even use cattle but the same Mm -hmm. principle applies and if you do that and keep moving them quickly though they have to be on there for a day no more and they'll trample everything crap on it. And the response is, is quite amazing. It really, I can see how using, you know, some people are putting 500 or, or 2000 cattle on a tiny piece of land, like an acre or two acres for a day
0: or even for one some, day. Absolutely.
1: Sometimes there's some, there's one guy, um, Neil Dennis in Saskatchewan. He was using it on two hour breaks and he was. Running one and a half million pounds of cattle per acre equivalent. Like that's insane number. Somebody said, well, how do you actually run that many cattle? He said, There's no problem as long as they all line up in the same direction. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, we're doing what we can to do that here. Our issue is, and this is an issue with everything that we're doing here, that we have a very shallow soil before we hit a limestone rock. And what that causes is one, a lot of alkalinity that we have to deal with. So certain things we're just out, out to luck on. But with, with moving the animals, it puts us in a position where the easy answer, which is step in fence posts and electronet, net just doesn't work. So I'm doing some experimenting right now where we're basically using concrete filled half cinder blocks. Uh, it just makes moving things a lot more laborious. So what we're trying to come up with is a pattern where we can have Three or four paddocks laid out, and then you can just move the electro net to the next paddock, and that gives you a couple of days to reposition your posts because they're not just pick them up out of the ground and step them in. It just it doesn't work here. It's not going to happen. It's never going to happen. You're not you know if I brought in 400 dump trucks load of soil and built up a foot of soil on three acres. Maybe it could happen that way, but with the soil we have right now, you're just not stepping in a post. It's not happening. To put in fences requires, you know, people that do it here for a living own a bobcat with a jackhammer attachment, and then they can they can move putting in a fence line. But otherwise, it is really, really, really tough ground to deal with. Well, two things come to mind in that situation. One,
1: um, don't go with fencing. Go with enclosures. Go with... Uh like we have a, you know, tractors. No, no, you know those little carports there, where it's a metal, a steel frame or a tube frame. Yeah. Uh, just knock the legs off of that. You've got the roof part, which could okay. serve as a big pen, and just put some some uh, wiring along the bottom. But put that all on wheels. So if you had that, where it's easy now, it's fairly heavy frame. It could be a fairly fairly heavy. Uh, yeah. Using it on wheels, I know I saw Joel South and had that for some sheep in a in a very small space. You can do it that way. So then you're not dealing with trying to put the posts in anyway. It's more like a pen. But the key with the pen is it's got to be easy to
0: move. Yeah, that,
1: that could be one way. The other thing, is I
0: think that works on a broad acre. I don't think it works on a three acre homestead with trees and buildings and access pinch points and and what have you. I think that's that's the the weakness there.
1: Well, I, I mean, we have an orchard over almost the whole farm, yeah. Uh, and so there is lots of very narrow. Our, our widest grassy lane mostly is six feet,
0: and cool. as,
1: as long as we make our pens to fit in that grass, then it works. So, the the you know make make your pen the smallest size of the area that you have to graze in, and then it's quite simple to use it throughout the area. Um, the other thing, too, that comes to mind in, in that kind of soil is it seems to be crying for trees, because trees will, and especially trees from seedlings.
0: Like oh, you ain't kidding, man. That's why that's why it's our mainstay yeah, here. Cause
1: yeah, because those trees, if you put them as seeds, actually, the taproot will actually, some of the exudates will dissolve, especially limestone. They'll dissolve. Yep. I'm sure you've seen your area probably has naturally oak trees growing. Yep, we
0: have uh, post oak and live oak are our two main oak species yeah, here. Yeah,
1: I would think that any oak around, if you dug underneath it, um, maybe your ground, you know, your or your uh, dead
0: rock is. You said what? Two feet down or a foot down? No, no. We have places where it's where it's a half a foot. It's six okay. inches. Well, underneath we an oak tree, with a foot, we have some places with a foot. We have places that are four inches, and you're hitting rock. It's 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 insane. But the oaks. Here's here's what we figured out with doing some excavation work. We'll dig up and pull some of the slab up with an excavator in an area that's never had a tree. And that rock is as hard as the concrete that they pour to lay a road down. We broke a fiberglass handle of a sledgehammer busting some of it up. We'll dig some up from an oak that's got some, you know, oak mold or something. We decide that tree's coming out. And when you dig that rock underneath an oak, not only are there places where it's eaten away and there's holes down in the rock... The rock you do pull out, it's gone orange, right. and you can take a big slab. I mean, it weighs 50, 100 pounds of rock, and a, and a grown man can take hands on both sides of it and pull it apart. It'll it'll crumble in your hand, and it's also become porous enough to where it's absorbing water. We've taken some of those rocks, and you pick it up really, really heavy. You set that rock out, rock out in the sun for a day or two, and you come back, and you notice the difference in the weight because there's so much moisture that's been taken into that rock that's been – eaten basically by the humic acid in the exudates of that tree. So that's, that's our big plan is everywhere that that's not established. We're putting in lines of trees with irrigation line to get those trees in the ground. And we're doing a lot with hardy legumes in those sections just to fracture the rock and just to get into that rock. Right. Um, and you, you, this is land you could never turn into conventional cropland. It's just, it, it's, it's always been rangeland and it's been abused rangeland. And you know, eventually it got turned into suburban, suburbia light, I would call it. Everybody's got, you know, three acres, ten acres, something like that, um, little ranchettes, that type of thing. And the land is just never really recovered around here. And it's getting to where we're starting to stick out compared to the surrounding landscape, you know. And that's, that's good. And I guess it also attracts maybe some unwanted attention at times. Who knows? <laughs> well,
1: that, that seems to be, you know, the, your model for your area, naturally, what would be the most productive is a savanna. You will have grassy areas, but the trees will be doing all the heavy lifting and and what you're saying. I mean, they'll be deepening your soil uh, or upping your soil. So they are really the key to to your building block. You may want in the beginning uh, to use your wood chips from your pruning crews, if ever they prune along power lines, if there's any trees. Uh, that we get
0: all we can. We we really do. We get all we can from people, and, and I, I've taken it when I need it, and I can't get it for free. I buy it. Right, right. It's our best amendment yeah. is, is wood chips. Yeah, yeah. That's absolutely. Uh... So how do you go to market, right? So you have all this 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 production. Um, you, You're working toward a level of financial self-sufficiency with it. You're doing this experimental model similar to what we do. Um, but you do have a commercial end in mind. Are you doing direct sales? Are you selling through a market? How how are you getting your product from your orchard to the hand of the consumer?
1: We work with uh, a membership club system. Uh, I don't know if you ever heard of the book uh, by Booker T. Watley. I think it was How to Make $40,000 on 10 acres or $100,000 on 25 acres. That was his, and he was saying how you really needed to use a clientele membership club. And so we'd adopted that when we first started and then we gave up on it just because we weren't known and it was too far. We're over, we're about an hour away from Montreal. And so it was, it was a little far to get a market going here that way. So for a few years we deviated from that, but the last few years we've gone back to that model and it works really well. It, it, I, love the idea of being able to limit the number of people we don't we pick very little of what grows uh, we leave the members pick everything i mean we had uh, an open day this past weekend
0: just so like a you pick csa model exactly except
1: that is in csa people pay up front yeah they pay just their membership up front and they make deposits so for example we get a deposit on all the birds people order uh, they, if they want to buy a chicken, well, they give us their membership because only members can order uh, meats. So they pay their membership and uh-huh. then they fill out an order form. And they give us a deposit. So in fact, the deposit covers all the cost for the bird. So it's the ten dollar deposit. Uh, our chickens sell for between thirty-five and fifty dollars a piece. So I know it wow. sounds ridiculous when when the price of chicken in the U.S. is so low, but people really pay for it because the difference is so different. I mean it's Joel Salton's pointed out years ago. He said, you know, start with chickens because chickens are the ones that will taste so different when they're raised outside compared to raised in a barn. Well
0: Yeah, there's a problem in the chicken market that we can see in a store down here we call I don't know if you guys have it up in Canada, but Costco. Right. Uh, they want, I'm sure they're not making a lot of money on these things. It might be a, a break-even loss leader to bring people into this. Because you go to Costco, you leave with $400 worth of crap. Um, but they sell a rotisserie chicken for five bucks. This means that they have grown the chicken, processed the chicken, cooked the chicken, packaged the chicken, and transported the chicken. They're selling that chicken for five dollars. You don't have to be a genius to look at that and go. That really is not possible if you're producing a really high-quality product. I'm not saying it tastes bad or anything. I'm just saying, like, if if you just start raising your own chickens in your own backyard and you raise 25 chickens a year of, of broilers, you'll quickly do the math and figure out you can't raise that bird for $5. And the fact that commercial industry does points to a major ethical issue and a major quality issue with the I mean that chicken might only be alive for 8 weeks but my view always with an animal is if I'm going to if I'm going to raise you kill you and eat you it's my responsibility to give you a decent life while you're here and that obviously isn't happening you can't sell a, a a cooked transported plucked processed bird for 5 bucks and be profitable if you're doing anything close to ethically with the treatment of that animal
1: right but I mean you know as well as I do that there is a whole lot of externality costs that are not covered in that chicken, anyway. Yeah, the, you know who's paying for the pollution? Who's paying for? Uh, there's a lot of things because of that model that are not factored into the cost. So,
0: I, I love your marketing model, though, Stefan, because one of my things with marketing is the most powerful word in marketing is no. Absolutely. Right? You can't have it. That's like so. I can imagine someone having someone over. And serving one of your birds and maybe having uh, a baked product made with some of your apples or something like that. And their friends saying, This is fantastic. Where did you get this food? And them saying, Well, I buy from, you know, from Miracle Farms. So, well, can I buy there? And the guy saying, Well, I don't know. I'll see if I can get you in. But, you know, I mean, that, that in itself is, it, it begins to create a pull style of marketing versus a push style of marketing. So Tyson, puts ads on your TV to push their crappy product into your home, where I think the niche producer, like yourself, the small producer, has to create a market that pulls rather than pushes.
1: Absolutely. I mean, (laughs) you should hear some of the phone calls I get, how people get irate. What do you mean I can't get a chicken? I said, you would have to order it in the spring, and it's available in, in the fall. I can't get one now. Uh, yeah, if you go to the store, you can get one, but you won't get one of my <laughs> chickens. You know, and most people the the re- reaction, and you realize it's that get with the program. You know, people go, "What?" I, I really, well, I'm sorry. You know, you can't get a chicken. And so, I remember one call I had from a, a member. Actually, it was a member who had picked up orders for a friend. And so this person wasn't a member, but she was combined in an order because these people were three hours away. So they they had a few people who were interested nearby. And so the member picked up all the orders for them. She bundled orders for other people. And I said, that's fine. You know, a member can bring a friend and they... Yeah. So they do that. So that's the, that's the privilege of membership. And if she happened to bundle orders, it made it worthwhile for her because the other person paid some of her gas to come pick it up three hours away. It's okay, that's fine. So this lady gives me a call after she got her chicken that, the, that the, the, the member had brought and, and she couldn't get over. She says, I have this chicken, but it's $50.
0: <laughs>
1: I said, yes. I said, it's a big chicken. It's a 10 pound chicken. Wow! But she said it's a
0: chicken and it's fifty dollars. <laughs> what well, it's a ten pound bird? It's five bucks a pound. That's 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 very fair for pastured poultry. Well, and then she couldn't get
1: her. She had never seen a chicken that reached ten pounds. I mean, you can't buy them in the store. What, what breed are you are you raising that's going ten pounds? I raised the Cornish cross.
0: The same ones, okay. and
1: I mean, we have an inspector because we have inspected. Uh, poultry, and so on. And the speaker came by, and he looks, and he goes, do you realize, he said, your birds would all be dead? I mean, not dead from processing, just die. They just would not live to be the age that yours are. I said, no, I didn't realize this. Yeah, he said, no birds would live this long. He says, you're going to be killing them soon, right? I said, oh, yeah. I ended up killing them a month and a half later. Uh, So it shows the difference. If the birds are not breathing in, the the fecal dust in the in the chicken houses well they have lungs that are able to work they have a heart that's able to keep up they're eating anything they need if they need a bit of sand they're going to eat it if they need some you know grit they'll find it and we give them grit so anyway to to finish the story about this lady I, I said well what's the the problem she says well i have eight people coming for thanksgiving and she said this is a chicken she says there's no way it'll feed." eight people, I said, listen, I said, if you're eight sitting down, if you can finish just the breast, I said, I'll give you the chicken for free, she couldn't believe it, but it's a chicken, how can a chicken breast even feed eight people, I said, look, I know that on a 10 pound chicken, there's five pounds of breast meat, if you guys are really big on white meat, and you could finish just the breast, anyway, long story short, she called me back a week later, and she couldn't stop, you know, she said, everybody raved at it. She said, we didn't finish the breast, you're right. Everybody left with leftovers. We had three meals out of the chicken, out of leftovers. And she says, I couldn't believe how one chicken could feed so many people so many times. You know, <laughs> basically, that 50, it seems like it's $50. Well, a $50, if you bought $50 a regular chicken, you couldn't feed as many people as that one fed. And not to mention the quality, because I always say to people, please do not get rid of the drippings. That fat is grass-fed, it's even pasture-fed, so we give it all the apples that they can eat, and so that that fat will have absolute taste. If you've ever eaten gravy that you just, you know, you go, wow, that is, that's, that's the best gravy I've ever eaten. I mean... That's just crazy. I've never had such good gravy. Uh, actually talking about, it. we just had chicken wings last night from our chickens from last year and it was fantastic. So it's, it really, it's a taste experience, but the point of the whole thing in marketing is membership is really, really good. We're not even in an optimal area, really not. Uh, according to Watley, he said, you've got to be no further than 30 minutes from a major population center. Well, we're more like an hour from a major population center, but because what we're doing is still so unique and and we get a lot of publicity just from the fact of doing the permaculture orchard and people are calling us all the time. And so we limit the number of members. We actually turn people down. So as you said, saying no just makes people want in so much more. And so what we like about the membership is because we're a UPIC, I mean, it's an orchard. We have orchards not that far away who turn who turn maybe 2,000 people on a weekend. I don't want to be faced with, you know, where do you park 2,000 people yeah. on a day? Yeah. You know, we have a 50-car parking, and when we're doing the PDC, it's full. But when we're picking, we don't want to have 50 cars here no. at any one time. So, you know, it, it really comes down, what do you want? You, if you know what you want, if you have the space, fine, go for it, you know, and, and do it on a big scale, and you can, do a, you can make a very good living. Uh, certainly with using the annual crops in the beginning, the birds are three times more profitable than the fruit and vegetables could be. So don't underestimate the power of, uh, you know, raising some birds. If you find people have an opposition to the price, then raise your price. <laughs> I know people will say, well, it no. makes no sense. No, it, it makes, makes perfect sense
0: sentence.
1: to me. Absolutely. Yeah. If people, I mean, we did that with our juice. We used to sell our juice similar to what other people did, and we said, wait a minute. You know how much time and effort goes into getting our juice? Last juice batch we had was 25 cultivars of apple in our apple juice. Who the hell has 25 cultivars? No one. No one. No one. So when people taste it, we have people who were a uh, 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 sommelier, you know, the guy who tastes the wine. Yeah. We had one guy who's a sommelier who who tried it, and he started to talk as if it was a wine. You know, he said, this is very nice. This good bouquet, good balance, not too acid, not too sweet. You know, and he's going on and on about it like it was a fine wine. Well, the point is, just keep raising your price. If people don't want to buy it,
0: Fine. Find new people.
1: Not only find new people, but <laughs> give it away then. Okay. Don't make, I love to give away. Who gives away food? Nobody. Virtually nobody. I mean, they'll, they'll do a giveaway if you go to Costco, you know, you can do a sampler. But yeah. we, last year we gave away more fruit than we sold. Just because we had such a huge crop year, we weren't expecting it. And so we would say to people, look, come pick, you get four bushels, which is 160 pounds of apples for free if you're a member. People were signing up as members because they said, what? For a membership cost, which was $55, I could get 160 pounds of, of, you know, beyond organic apples? They said that's insane. And so rather than saying, okay, we got a big crop, let's lower the price. No, let's
0: keep the
1: price the same and give away. So the surplus. Can- uh,
0: see, what I love about that is, is multiple things, right? So exactly. let's say yeah, I'm selling my apples for the store price, two forty nine a pound or something like that, and I give you a pound of apples. Well, I've given you $2.49 worth of apples in your head. If I'm selling my apples for $6 a pound and I give you five pounds of apples, as far as you're concerned, I just gave you 30 bucks. So by having the higher price, it actually increases the perceived value of what I give you. Right. If that makes sense. Right.
1: Yeah, and there's the whole issue about in marketing. I'm sure you've heard about it. The lifetime value of a customer. Yep. You know, you give yep. away five dollars. You're not giving away five dollars. You're gaining five thousand dollars because if that customer stays with you for twenty years, and they only buy, uh, you know, a hundred dollars a year. That's well, that's two thousand two two hundred fifty a year. there's your five thousand dollars, so you got to look at it as for the long term and the nice thing with members is you build a relationship, you can take the time to educate them uh there's just so many benefits, and the whole fact about being able to limit the number how many stores could say, "Oh, no more customers
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it, definitely there's a pricing curve issue too, so if I take a product and I price it at a penny. I I will cheapen it to the point where nobody will buy it. And as I increase the price, what's funny is actually more and more people start buying it. And more and more buy it, more and more buy it, more and more buy it. And I come up to a peak at a price where I get the most customers I could possibly get. As I increase the price from there, it's like a bell curve coming down the other side. And it drops off very, very slowly, very, very slowly. And then eventually it it, it gets to the point where you're just charging too much. I won't buy it. Everybody in the commodity-based world today is trying to price themselves at just just to the on the edge of the upside of that curve. They want to get as many customers as they can. The funny thing is if you go to the backside of that curve and you start to price yourself where you start to decrease the number of customers, the first customers that leave are the customers you don't want. They're the pain in the ass complainers. They're, They're all the people you cannot afford to serve because every second they, they suck of your time and energy could be spent with a customer that's going to be that lifelong customer. So, you price yourself out of the pain in the ass customer market. You don't want that customer. It, it's, you know, in, in marketing, we call it firing customers. I, don't, I, I will never do business with you again. Thank you. <laughs> right? okay. And there are people I legitimately feel that way about in, in all walks of this. I don't want to serve you as a customer because you're too much maintenance for things that are not really important. If I've actually screwed up, I want to know and I want to fix it for you. But if you're complaining because well I was at Albertsons and they have apples for a dollar. Goodbye. <laughs> Goodbye. You know, you got almost get like the soup Nazi on uh on Seinfeld.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. No,
0: no apples for you.
1: I've had uh, people come in and complain some of your apples are 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 you know, bitten by bugs. I said, "Yeah, you're looking for perfect apples." They said, "Yeah." I said, well, "Go down the road about 15 miles, you'll find some." <laughs> you know you'd well, be willing to turn away cuz it's not worth it and membership the nice thing is oddly enough that person will not get a mailing the next year for membership <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah yeah your renewal has been revoked they well the, the the Japanese when they go to markets they'll look for the vegetables that have holes in them because they know that that food is not poison right the reason the bug if the bug won't eat it you don't want it because there's a reason the bug won't eat it. It's coated in toxins.
1: Absolutely. Jack, listen, I, I got a call coming in from New Zealand
0: in a couple minutes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we need to wrap, I, dude. We're at like almost two hours here. I, let me just real quick let you give a plug for your uh, for your video. Okay, but I'd love to. I mean, I, I see we could easily go over another hour or another episode
1: or two. Uh, certainly just the whole marketing part would be uh, – Beautiful because you know it from a sales perspective, and a lot of people get into the growing, but they forget that you could grow anything. But if you can't sell it, and that whole selling part is so valuable and, and important.
0: So yeah, definitely. But I don't want to I don't want to keep you any longer. If you got this call coming, especially from from overseas, um, could you at least let people know before you go about the film? Uh, about the permaculture orchard and how they can get it and how they can learn more about uh, Miracle Farms.
1: Yeah, so for people who don't know about it, there's two websites you really want to take a look at. The first one for the film, and I mean, I think Jack's been a, a supporter from the beginning. He's, he's seen it. He likes it. He knows that it's, it's worthwhile. Go to permacultureorchard.com. That's all one word, permacultureorchard.com, and you can pick up the film the other one for just you want to find out a little bit more information about what we do at the farm, it's miracle.farm, and that's a new TLD ending, uh, miracle.farm. So that's the farm website. And sure, sign up, please, at both of them to, to be on the mailing list. If you want to uh, find out more information, that would be great. Uh, and sure, you got to start somewhere and learn along the way but it's well worth it there's the potential is huge i'm so excited about the future and i think jack you are too because seeing what you're doing uh, you're on the right track you're trying uh, different veins of it but it's you you'll be following the gold pretty quickly
0: well you know i'd like to end this on a on what's become one of my favorite sayings it's an old greek proverb and i i think you'll like it if you hadn't heard it before and you probably have but it's that um a society grows great when old men plant trees under whose shade they know they shall never sit. Absolutely. And, uh, I think that is really a big driver, that mentality of what people like you and I are doing. I, I could just sit here and podcast for the rest of my life, honestly, and, and I've built a business off of that. I'm not doing the things that I'm doing uh, with establishing farms and establishing permaculture systems and, and education programs to get wealthy. I'm doing it because I think that we have a lot of problems in this world, and I think politically we're done. We're just not getting anywhere. It, it's it's time for action, and, and and that's the goal that I have is to to leave something behind and to not just leave something behind that I've done, but a blueprint so that it can keep being done.
1: Absolutely. That's what I've been working at too, and uh, trying to trying to get the idea of the model of the permaculture orchard into as many people's hands as possible. Thanks a lot, Jack. That was fantastic.
0: Well, thanks for being on the show with us today, and. Uh I, I really hope people, if they haven't gotten your your DVD, uh, will get a copy. I did get it during the uh, the Kickstarter, but it's still available, and uh, I think you can learn a ton from it. Uh, I took away a lot of things from it. It confirmed a lot of things too, like my issues with uh, with planting in the spring here were really heavy stress on the trees and planting in the fall being a better time and I, I had already worked that out because the trees I planted in the fall were healthy and the trees I planted in the spring were stressed the hell out <laughs> but you gave me the explanation for why that's the case if you want to know that folks get the DVD you'll learn all that and more and again Stefan thanks for being with us today
1: thanks a lot Jack and thanks to all your listeners
0: and uh, with that I want to say this has been Jack Spirico along with Stefan Subkoviak, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't Ready up there, care.